KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, Flashpoint family. This is KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg. First up, I have to say thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the Flashpoint podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And then could you do me another favor and log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or wherever that you got this podcast and provide a review and rate this podcast. We need your reviews to take us to the top. Plus, I just want your feedback. Let's get back to the show. Thank you, everybody. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on house stealing. Oh, yeah, it's become a thing. He said, well, someone's breaking in the door and they're claiming to be the new owners. How fraudsters use fake documents to snatch properties from unknowing homeowners. He finds out who the record owner is. And then he forges a deed. What makes a home vulnerable and what you can do if you're a victim. All in time for Real Estate Week in Philadelphia. Then he traveled through Pennsylvania to talk about weed. Pennsylvanians feel very passionately about this subject. The results of the Lieutenant Governor's 67 County Marijuana Listening Tour. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is house stealing, a scam where fraudsters literally take a property from an unknowing homeowner and sell it to an innocent third party. The problem is creeping to epidemic proportions, and now the Philadelphia DA's office is stepping up enforcement. Hopefully to deter others from doing it in the future. Assistant District Attorney Kimberly Isak runs the Economic Crimes Unit and says the targets are low-income people and heirs of estates. Those who are vulnerable, uh, people who don't really understand how to handle their estates. So how does it work? And what can you do to protect your property? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Hillary Emerson. She is Chief Legal Housing and Zoning Counsel for Councilwoman Sherelle Parker. We also have Michael Froelich. He's an attorney with Community Legal Services. And finally, we have Bernard Wiggs. He's a property owner whose property was stolen. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank, Thank you, Cherry. Thank you. So, Mike, I want to start with you. How in the world could somebody just steal a house right from under them? That's a very good question, uh, and we wonder that sometimes as well. But here's what usually happens. Usually there's a bad guy, and he sees a property. Most of the time he sees a property that's, that's vacant. Uh, he finds out who the record owner is, and then he forges a deed, forges the signature of the person who owns it, uh, forges the notary of the person uh, on the deed as well, and then takes that deed down uh, to, the, to City Hall and gets it recorded. Now, most of these scams, though, once the, the, the bad guy steals the house and puts it in his name or an associate, associate's name, there's a second step. They'll then transfer it to an innocent third party mm. representing, hey, this is my house. And now the third party is also victim. So there's two victims here. There's the original rec- uh, owner of the property, but then there's most likely or most often a, a second victim who's the innocent person who, who then becomes the owner of a property that they really don't actually own. Yeah, and then there's a the guy in the middle, the fraudster, who gets paid. And I want to before I go to Hillary, I want to jump to you, Bernard. This happened to you. Yes, it did. This incident occurred over a year ago. It's taken me this long to get to the point of getting it back. My situation was my son was uh, driving by my property, and they were actually breaking into the door. And I got a call from my son, and he asked, had I sold the property? I said, no. Why? He said, well, someone's breaking in the door, and they're claiming to be the new owners. And at that point, I drove down to, you know, try to see what's going on, and um the actual owner, the lady, wasn't there, but she had someone to to try to get into the property. Um, so I told them, I said, "Well, this, you know, this is my property. I have not sold the property." And that's when they made me aware that you know they got it. They they supposedly brought it from a Bernard Wiggs, which was not me. That's wild. And we'll stop you right there, sure. and we'll come back because this is a it's a year long process for you that is still. Not 100% over. Hillary, mm-hmm. when you hear what he says, he shows up at his property. Someone says, I bought this from Bernard Wiggs. And he's he's like, I'm Bernard Wiggs and I didn't sell it to you. 
what your reaction to that and just how in the world are there loopholes that this type of thing could happen? Yes. Yeah, so my my unfortunate reaction is I'm I'm not surprised because we have people call our office with similar stories. We had somebody who someone with a, the same name as him actually mortgaged the house that he lived in um, and said he owned it, even though same name, different person. And the actual owner later had uh, foreclosure proceedings on his house, got a sheriff's notice that said his house was up for sale, and then contacted our office and said, "I, how is my house up for sale? I don't have this mortgage against it. Discovered that someone else had used the property to uh, leverage a mortgage. That's crazy. Uh, yes. So it, we unfortunately we've seen and heard some some crazy stories, and it's definitely something that we're very concerned about um, in a city that has so many properties, um, a high rate of home ownership, um, and something that you know we've been working with organizations like Community Legal Services as well as other city departments to see what we can do from a regulatory standpoint, a legislative standpoint, to try to address this issue and make it more difficult um, for people to do that. It sounds pretty easy when Mike was saying step one, step two, step three. And, you know, it doesn't see it seems like there's a where are the loopholes where somebody can just go in there and get a mortgage without some kind of check. It shouldn't be that easy. Sure. I mean, the mortgage situation is is terrible and it's awful and it's somewhat uncommon. I think the more common Mm -hmm. issue is the deed theft issue. Mm -hmm. Like, how is it that you that a bad guy can get away with this? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the recorder of deeds, which is the office in City Hall that keeps the public record, that keeps the public index of all of these of of all the property records. They've made uh, enormous strides in the last year or so in trying to crack down on this. So, for Mm -hmm. example, if you go down there now, uh, they're going to make a copy of your ID when you try to record a Mm -hmm. property. They're going to take your picture. They're going to send a letter uh, to the the, the uh, property address saying, "Did you know that a de- a new deed was recorded on your property?" But what they can't do under state law, unfortunately, is that they can't say, "Hmm, in my personal opinion, this piece of paper which you're presenting to me looks like a forgery. I'm going to reject it." They're not permitted uh, to reject a document which satisfies the legal requirements. So as a result, scammers who know what the minimum requirements of a deed are, they can forge a deed. Now, that actually takes us to the second point, though. So if if the recorder of deeds is required to accept these what we would call prima facie valid deeds, uh, well, how do you get them to stop? And I think the, ne- the answer to that is increasing enforcement increasing prosecutions and really going after these bad guys, whether it's the district attorney's office, the U.S. attorney's office or other uh, enforcement agencies. And there was just Mm -hmm. a big major sting, I think, operation. And we'll talk about that in just a second, because I want to pick back up with Bernard's story. So you get there. They tell you that I bought this thing for Bernard Wiggs. You're like, I'm Bernard Wiggs, didn't sell it. What was it? What did you have to do in order to, to figure this thing out? Oh, well, the first thing I did was took them straight down to the police district and got a report filled out. And second thing I did was get in touch with the attorney, Mike, and he advised me to go do a quiet title. Once I went and did the quiet title, then there's various steps you go on and on from there uh, down in City Hall to rectify the situation. It's time-consuming, but uh, well worth it. Yeah. And so how much did this person make off your house? Um, Well, the amount that the person said she brought it for was $10,000. I, I don't know if that was ever transpired or not. What was your reaction going up to this fake homeowner and saying, or this person who was believed to be an innocent homeowner, I suppose, and what was your reaction, this person up in your house? It was a little, it felt, viol, you know, like a violation. Um, at the same time, I had to understand that I don't know if she was actually scammed or not. I don't know. Uh, if she was part of the scam, I don't know if she was scammed. I just said, okay, well, the best the best way to handle this is as if she was scammed. I went down. I'll let the police handle it. They know uh, they were already abreast on uh, different things that were going on mm-hmm. with this scam. They had already had the person who's uh, pretended to be me. They already had him in the radar. It wow. works itself out, yeah. And so, Hillary, there's mm-hmm. been a beef, beefed up effort. I know Councilwoman Sherelle Parker was at the one of the recent um, announcements from the DA's office that mm-hmm. they had found these people, and they weren't even from America. Yes, yes, and indeed. Unfortunately, we see 
we see people um, you know, from, from the U.S. and, and abroad um, even involved in these scams. And um, one, one other uh, issue that, that we've had in terms of um, enforcement is sometimes people will commit these frauds, forge these deeds, but there won't be a family member who's aware of it or somebody with an interest in the property uh, aware of it to, to be the victim who brings the case. Mm. And so properties can then get transferred multiple times until somebody finally realizes that there's a problem or that someone who died 10 years ago, you know, signed a, a deed this year transferring the property. So that is something else that, that makes it difficult is there isn't always a victim. So that's something we've been looking into uh, legally uh, with our law department to see if there's a way that perhaps the city uh, could be considered the victim in those cases so that there's somebody to bring cases when there when there are suspicions of fraud um, on these deeds. So, Hillary, I, I just explain. So there's houses where somebody mm-hmm. died. Yes. And the house is probably like in some form of limbo, possibly, you know, heirs to this property. But they may not know. So the thieves kind of say, oh, nobody's been doing anything with this. Exactly. Taxes are unpaid. Exactly. So, bam, I'm going to go in here and no one may even know. Exactly. We saw that happen in our district. Two houses uh, right next to each other. Someone went and forged a deed from, from somebody who had died and there were no family members. But the district attorney's office got was able to investigate the case and find the fraud that was done and bring a prosecution in that particular instance but it was very difficult because they were not able to find any heirs uh, to work with on the case wow so yeah so it is very difficult when there you know when there are houses that you know people are committing these frauds but there's nobody who can can stand in and say this is my property um, and the fraud is being you know hurting me against me. Yeah. And so when, Mike, are there like properties that are more vulnerable to this type of theft? Well, I think there are. Uh, and those are the properties that where the, the, the owner has, has recently died. Um, if, uh, if I could give three pieces of advice, it would be this. Number one, if you're a homeowner, have a will. Know what's going to happen to your property after you die. And the best way to do that is to have a will. And number two, if you're an heir, if uh, if your loved one has recently passed and, and he or she owned property, probate your loved one's estate. Go to the Register of Wills office in Philadelphia, probate the estate, uh, do the paperwork that's necessary to get the record ownership of the home into, into the names of the heirs. Uh, and number three, if you own a vacant property, make sure that the city uh, has your updated address so that when it's going to send out tax bills and other letters regarding the address, uh, regarding the property, it's not going to send it directly to this vacant address, but it's going to be sending it to your address. So what the mail sometimes is going to that vacant address, people just look in the mail and they could tell, oh, this is one of the houses I could just scoop up. Is that it? Exactly. No, that's exactly what happens. And we see it all the time with our vacant properties and we see who owns it. And the only listed address is the actual address of the property. Make sure you're reading your mail. If you haven't gotten a water bill or a tax bill for a property that you own, that's a problem. Somebody else could, you know, be paying it and putting it in their name. And doing all that. And so mm-hmm. are, are some of these red flags, some things you experience when you look back in hindsight, were you like, oh, OK, I probably should have. My property was sitting. Um, my, my dad had the property and was passed down. The building had been in my family for over 50 years. And I grew up in that area. The, the entire neighborhood knew my family, and, and, and that's where I lucked up. But other, other victims who may live in another state or another area don't have, you know, they may not know or have anyone to come check on that property. They may be in trouble because if, if someone does it and you haven't been in that property in a year, then they had a whole year to execute their their theft, that becomes even more of a problem because now they have sweat equity in it and different things of that nature, and, and you're in trouble. Um, it's a hard fight. I'm not saying you can't get it back, but it'll be a hard fight. Yeah, and let's switch over to that, your recourse, because you got multiple victims here. You got the homeowner, the original owner. You got the buyer in a case of an innocent purchaser. And then even sometimes you got notaries who had their signatures on this thing, and they've never met these people. Can you just you know, snatch your house back from somebody 
And what are the factors in determining whether or not you can get your home back or your property back? For most people, the remedy is going to be filing a quiet title action like like Mr. Wiggs did. Uh, this is a uh, essentially a lawsuit which is filed in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas in which you uh, assert why you are the record owner and not the person who is currently listed. In many cases, you file this, this quiet title lawsuit. The bad guy does not respond to it. Uh, and so within a matter of six to nine months, you'll, you can get an order from the court saying that, in fact, yes, you are the record owner. Then you can take this, this order from the, from the judge and record a new deed, which transfers the property back into your name. It's a pretty cumbersome process, pretty laborious process, but it's the, it's the legal process that we have to enforce. Yeah. Uh, but if people are like living in there, you know, and I'm put a new stove in a kitchen. I mean, can you really, even with the quiet title, I mean, are you able to just, they're not going to leave. If they don't leave, that's, that's true. You have another issue on your, on your hands. Now you're the record owner and you are entitled to possession and you may be entitled to rent from the, the people who are there, but you will then need to unfortunately go through a second process to get them together. City lawmakers are really, and state lawmakers even, are really catching on to this now. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of shifting a little bit into a squatting issue. It's a complicated process because ownership and you know, who has rights to be in the property is not always a straightforward answer, especially when you have a case where, say, you know, grandma died and the grandchildren, you know, inherited the property, but she didn't have a will and they live there. You know, they have to get that straightened out through the, you know, the probate process. And it's, it's a very it's a very difficult situation. And I know for a lot of people, it's quite frustrating because you want to take ownership of your property back immediately. You don't want to see damage done to your property or, you know, see them put, you know, improvements on your property that they want to be compensated for. What we do when people come to our office with these issues is we try to connect them um, both civilly with an organization like Community Legal Services and also look at it from the the criminal side, the district attorney, police, and see what can be done um, on that angle because there there may be cases where you have a a criminal trespass um, and could have prosecution that way, but there may be cases where you have to pursue say, an act of ejectment, something in civil courts to have people be removed from your home once you've established that, you know, you're the you're the resident and, you know, they they don't have a right to be there. And to me, that sounds scary because Mm -hmm. this could get straight up altercations, all kinds of things. And so what's the status of your case, uh, Bernard? Like, uh, are you getting your house back? Was the person did they just willingly leave? What was the situation? Well, yeah, I I end up winning. Um, uh, my case, and I'm on the last step of returning it back to my name. Um, the person, they never showed the court. Um, they never responded to any documentations or any uh, anything as far as the court is concerned, and, and that's where I'm at now, returning it back to my name. You did a lot of things right, um, Bernard. One of the things you did right is that you learned about it really early. Yeah. You know, a lot of times people people may may not learn that their home was stolen for months and months right. or they may learn about it and not take any steps what really helped with you is is that you learned about it early you immediately filed a police report right. then you went and talked with an attorney to figure out like how do i go about getting my property back so action 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 yeah it's very important to 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 act right away the longer you go on uh, the harder it will be to uh, to undo um, the the scam also that, you know, you're keeping an eye on your property. You know, Mr. Wiggs had his son, you know, drive by in the neighborhood right when this was happening. So that was that was great. Someone that oh, knew. Oh, fate and luck. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and we've had, you know, other cases where, you know, neighbors have reached out to um, let us know that a property that was vacant has been um, broken into. And so to have, you know, people, neighbors watching out and you watching out, you know, for any properties that you have that may be vacant to make sure that um, someone isn't trying to, you know, take possession of them. Again, a deed hasn't been filed. Um, that's fraudulent, that sort of thing. Like it it, it does take a, a, a lot of vigilance and action um, on on the part of the owners, which, you know, yeah. is, is is tough. But, you know, we all we all work together a to try to owning property. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I do have to switch. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the buyers because this is a booming market right now. And this is real estate week. People in from Philly trying to reap the benefit of this booming uh, market. 
what should they be on the lookout for? And how do I mean, because you could lose a lot of money, you know, trying to buy a house and then flip it and whatever. And you didn't know this was all a fraud, fraudulent scam. The first question that I always ask, did you have title insurance? Because for buyers, mm. you can protect yourself from these issues if you have title insurance. Um, if you uh, buy a piece of property, then later somebody comes comes at you and says that the person that you bought the property from did not have the right to sell it to you. Uh, if you have title insurance, you can file a claim with your t- the title insurance company and let them deal with it. just want to mention, too, that the – a lot of these records about properties are also public information. And so people can, you know, go online to to city websites or go to the recorder's office and just check out information about properties as well um, to see, you know, what they, um, you know, who the, who the record owner was. Is this person, you know, did they recently purchase the property or, you know, have they been a longstanding owner of the property? There's different things that can kind of give you clues. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. I mean, everybody's getting in this real estate game, but it's not a game. This is this is real life. And so are there resources? And then I want to give uh, Bernard the final word. The first thing I would say is file a police report. The current district attorney has really prioritized economic crimes, uh, has, uh, has been very public about uh, his intent to go after scammers. It's important to start that process by, by uh, filing a, a, a complaint with the, with the police department. And then the second piece is if you want to speak with an, an attorney, Community Legal Services represents low-income Philadelphians. Uh, you can find out more information about Community Legal Services at our website, which is clsphila.org. You can also go to your council office to get some assistance and resources. We will uh, recommend that you file a police report. We can help you follow up on status of any investigations that happen as a result of that um, and connect you with different legal service organizations, including Community Legal, that can provide you with some resources and advice um, for the civil side of things. Bernard, final word. If you own a property, constantly check on it. If you're going away or you're going to be gone for some stint of time, have someone check on it. Have your neighbors understand that I am not selling this property no time soon. And if you find yourself in a situation like I was in, you know, it requires immediate action. You can't wait. I'm glad you're getting your property back, Bernard. I know this will never happen again to you. No, not at all. People will be rolling by. So I want to say thank you to Hillary Emerson. Thank you to Michael Froelich. And thank you to Bernard Wicks for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, he went on a tour of Pennsylvania to talk about weed. You know, there are some people that have made up their mind. The results and next steps of the 67-county marijuana listening tour. The first traffic and weather in a minute. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets residents of our area hot under the collar is a closed mind. Another thing, locking folks up for marijuana possession. So one man has been making the headlines for traveling the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to talk about weed. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is closing out his 67-county listening tour when he sat in meetings with Pennsylvanians on all sides of the argument. Welcome to Flashpoint, Lieutenant Governor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you just wrapped up or wrapping up your 67-county listening tour. How was it? It was outstanding. One of the things that we can affirm is that Pennsylvanians from every walk of life and from every county appreciate the opportunity to have a civil, thoughtful exchange with other people that think differently with them on a particular subject. In 67 counties and in 70 events, I never once had to demand civility from a room. It was always given and offered. And I think that's a really, uh, a real testament to the people of Pennsylvania. Wonderful. How many people do you think attended all, all of these sessions oh, all over the... Thousands, thousands. Wow. Our largest approached 450 in attendance in Lancaster. And then we had smaller ones, you know, with 50 or under in in some smaller counties, depending on the day and the county size. Uh, But they were all well attended, with the exception of of a few. It was a great exchange in the debate. Yeah. And before we get into the findings, I just want to make clear your position on marijuana. You know, my my position is is one of of neutrality through this whole process Mm -hmm. in that that I have a specific assignment and, and I take it very seriously that. I'm here as a facilitator and as a moderator, mm-hmm. and uh, my views never came up 
Because what I think isn't interesting, what I think is interesting is what the people of Pennsylvania think. Uh, and that's what I was tasked with coming up with. Uh, and that's what I believe we've done. Got it. And I just want to be clear, you have been supportive of adult use uh, cannabis. In the past, uh, I've, I've, of course, never made any secret of my, mm-hmm. my views. But, but I look at it that my views were uh, the issue when I was running in a campaign. Now that I am your lieutenant governor, I'm here to represent everyone's views. It's more about figuring out where Pennsylvania is as a whole. And so what did you find? I mean, Philadelphia has a very strong pro-legalization, pro-decriminalization area. So how's the rest of the state doing? We had precious few counties out of 67 where there was a majority of people in attendance that were opposed to the idea. Wow. And I, I would say that in, in, in some very red counties, I would reference Somerset County or Bedford County, there was a majority of support for it. And uh, we had been reporting this consistently. Like, yeah, well, the room was, you know, 55, 45. It was slightly. And then uh, on 420, CBS News released a comprehensive poll and 56% of Republicans support legalizing it. And that's exactly what we've been finding. Uh, and I think that's attributable to two reasons. One is that there is a very strong and distinct libertarian streak within the Republican Party that feels very passionately that the government has no right telling you what you can and can't do in the privacy of your, your own home as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, and then the other f- factor, I think, that is changing the hearts and minds is the exposure to medical marijuana in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and the reflect, effects that it's seen on, on the elderly or on children or people that they know. And they suddenly get a different perspective that it's not, it's not this reefer madness or this gateway drug or what have you. It's, it's actually something that has helped people. But I, I've done several shows on marijuana and the legalization, decriminalization, and all different points of view. And consistently there are there is a segment of the population that is strongly opposed. What were their main concerns? Sure, their main concerns yeah. were uh, that they believe that it's a gateway drug, that they say, well, you know, you try marijuana and then you're going to climb the, the, the ladder towards addiction and harder drugs. Another concern is, and, and I would say uh, scientifically there's basis that marijuana can have an adverse impact on young developing brains mm-hmm. and that by, quote, legalizing it, aren't we, quote, condoning it? And encouraging its use, uh, and then the the other big concern is is concerned about uh, the rise of driving under impairment. In other words, it will just increase use, and there'll be more people driving under the influence, et cetera, et cetera. How did you yes. find the turnout, and what do we, you think was a determining factor in areas where it was more contentious or less settled? Attendance spiked, and in areas where, like Philadelphia, ironically. The smallest crowds we had of any of the events were in Philadelphia, you know, and that runs counterintuitive. You would, you know, assume, well, it's Philadelphia, you know, it's, 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 I think people are post talking about it. They're like, let's just do it. At least that's been the impression that I get. Um, it's decriminalized in Philadelphia. I, I think people have moved on as, as, as a whole. Whereas you go to uh, Perry County, which is cont- where it was be a divided, more contentious. We had 175 people show up in Perry County. It's not a big county. It's a small rural county. So uh, when you have 10 times the number of people showing up in Perry County to talk about it than you do in Philadelphia, that says to me that in, in parts of the state that where it's still more contentious, that's where you had those showing up, and, and which I think is a good thing because we wanted to hear from those especially that might be opposed to it, and I think we did that in the tour. Yeah. And so what do you think the biggest challenge is? Um, because Philly folk, I mean, when we look at I think Philadelphia people live in a, a bubble in a way because it's like a very liberal county. And they but when you're talking about, you know, Commonwealth wide efforts, you have mm-hmm. to consider everybody. And so what do you think the big the, the, the biggest well, lessons learned and the biggest challenges are? You you just brought uh, brought to the forefront the rationale why we went to all 67 mm-hmm. We could have just gone to Pittsburgh and Philly and Erie and just said, well, we did a listing tour. It's like there wouldn't have been a lot of, uh, I think, validity attached to that. We decided we have to go everywhere because people have different views. The world looks much differently in a small rural county in northwestern PA than it does in center city Philadelphia. So uh, we wanted to capture that. And, And there's always going to be challenges. I mean, we don't know what 
direction, if any, is going to, to come from this. Two things that we promised the people of Pennsylvania were we were going to go everywhere. Mm. And we did that. And then the second part of that promise is we were going to produce a report, and we're working on that, and it's going to be presented and released to the governor and to the citizens of Pennsylvania for their consideration. And I have to say, I was a moderator of a cannabis conference here in Philadelphia, and I have to Mm -hmm. say, pro-weed people show up. Did you feel that, you know, some of the places were unevenly stacked with pro-marijuana folks? Because they hear anything like this, and they come out in droves. The pro people certainly uh, showed up, definitely, but but it wasn't it wasn't like they were wearing marijuana shirts. One of the things we found out is that you can't tell somebody's views on cannabis by the way they look. You know, stereotypically, I've had sweet little old ladies come up to the microphone and say, "I've been smoking cannabis for sixty years." Like, let's get over it. <laughs> um, there's no one defined user, but it also brought out plenty of people that who you might imagine that are more culturally conservative. You know, just kind of like an an interesting anecdote. We did not have a single uh, religious leader, and I would say, you know, pastor, minister, mm-hmm. uh, that was in support of it. They they expressed their uh, opposition. Um, the 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 most the closest that uh, religious leader was an African American. I think she was a deacon or an elder at, at a church, and she was at Bucks County, and she was undecided. So it, it seems that those that, that, that trend heavily on um, religion seem to be less there uh, intellectually uh, than uh, those that are, uh, let's bring it on. Um, and then on, on the, uh, the, the, the other side, I don't think we heard from a single veteran or very few precious veterans that weren't strongly supportive of it because they, uh, like, this is the one thing that makes me feel normal. I need medical marijuana, but the VA won't prescribe this to me. Uh, and we got to get it off schedule one so we can open up and we can, uh, you know, I'm tired of pills. Pills don't help me. This is what helps me. So we heard from a lot of veterans that way. Yeah. And so what about the undecided people? What was sort of because there's I mean, because I, I don't know how many um, there's a lot yeah. of people who agree and say yes. And then there's a lot of people who say no, and they may never change. But the undecided folks, what are the sticking points for them? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, undecided is a distinct part of our population there. I would estimate it somewhere, you know, I don't. I would say it's maybe 5%. I don't think it would be any greater than 10%. Mm-hmm. I think it's somewhere in the 5 to 8% of people that are genuinely undecided. And I always was most impressed by them because they were coming out to hear other people's views and to make up their own mind. I, I think that's really, you know, regardless of what your views are, to, to go out and make a willful choice to educate yourself, I, I think that's uh, to be commended. Uh, and they they said, well, I'm not crazy about it, uh, but, you know, if it does, here's what I would like it to be. And I feel there's a sense of inevitability among people, even those that are opposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the issue of legalization of adult use cannabis versus decriminalization. Is there a difference in people's points of view on those two issues? Yes. I heard mostly near unanimous support for decriminalization, where it's like, even if I don't want it recreationally, they think it's crazy that someone's record could get banged up over a simple possession of a plant. They, They kept saying that. I'm like, it's not a drug. It's a plant. It's not a pill. It's a plant. So you you had a lot of people saying it's crazy to make a plant illegal uh, or criminalized in that sense. Another thing you heard was universal, near universal appreciation for medical marijuana. That was not the case not that long ago. Yeah. Very contentious and very like, you know, elements of the skies falling or whatever. And and now people are like, oh, oh, this is pretty great. Or they know somebody that it helped or the, your clientele in a medical marijuana dispensary is a 64 year old woman who is, you know, like a cancer survivor. And I think that's helped change the hearts and minds and everybody almost almost to the point of virtually unanimous, uh, precious few think that it should remain as a schedule one drug federally. They want that to change. Yeah, we have a patchwork of laws in Pennsylvania, according to county. 
on whether, um, you know, it's it's decriminalized or not. And a lot of people of color leave Philadelphia or leave some of the other counties where it's been decriminalized and it's simply a ticket. They go to another county and they're the ones who get caught up in the mess and get banged for possession. You can't dispute it. The, the, the numbers. African-Americans are arrested and entangled in the criminal justice system for marijuana use. Uh, you know, significantly higher rates than than whites. It's a fact. So did so, those conservative uh, counties recognize, because they might not have the disparity issue as, as much as a Philadelphia or like a, a Pittsburgh well, uh, area? There certainly isn't the person of color representation in a rural county that you would have in Philadelphia. But the concern was was raised by folks. This, Got this it. idea that 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 uh, it, it's it's just prohibition disproportionately affects the poor and people of color. And that alone, in their view, was a justification to um, end prohibition. Wonderful. So the decriminalization is is near unanimous. It's just the yes. issue. Uh, of- I've, I've had I, I find very few even Republicans that are mm-hmm. more socially conservative that think, yeah, this is a good use of time. Yes, we should continue to, you know, to get people tangled up in this mess. As chair of the Board of Pardons, I had numerous mm. occasions during it to step out of my role and say, you should apply for a pardon. Because there were people saying my life was really damaged by a stupid marijuana possession, you know, when I was in college or when I was this. And I'm like, you need to apply for a pardon. Get that off your record. Very interesting uh, tour you had, Lieutenant Governor. I mean, this is uh, this is fascinating stuff to see yeah. how all of this comes together. You know, you're going to have this report come out. When is it going to come out? And what are you hoping that lawmakers do with this? What I hope is is that that we can have an honest conversation and say that based on polling, based on this conversation, that a, a significant majority of Pennsylvanians want to see this conversation proceed, whatever that looks like. We bent over backwards to be as fair and as objective as we possibly could. And so you are hoping that this can be an unbiased snapshot of how Pennsylvania, because I understand I read somewhere that you got like tens of thousands of comment cards from people. Yeah, over 30,000. Over 30,000 Pennsylvanians have shared their views online. Um, And thousands more have, have submitted comment cards live from audiences. People care very much about this issue. Yeah. And it sounds like at the very least, Pennsylvania could have a statewide decriminalization effort that could make it. I had a, a conversation with a, with a ranking uh, Republican House member and uh, to the, that's, introduced, that's introduced such a, a bill. And we discussed expungements as well, too. And it wasn't like a pick your jaw off the ground kind of shock. It was like, yeah, that's. That makes sense. So you think and, that uh, this Republicans, they could possibly decriminalize uh, I marijuana? I, I don't know. I would never speak for anyone, certainly not members of the opposing party and their leadership. Uh, but what I can say is, is that that in conversations I've had, I you know, there are some people that have made up their mind about recreationally. But I think there's a lot of other areas where there's very little controversy or things. So who knows? Yeah. And a lot of people know you now, Lieutenant Governor. I mean, you were already well known, but now people got a chance to see you in person and shake your hand and, you know, yell at you a little bit or, or yeah, tell you their well, opinions. I, that's the best part of my job. And, and it was it was an honor to get to go around. And, and uh, it was a rewarding experience. And we certainly discovered that Pennsylvanians feel very passionately about this subject. All right. Well, thank you so much to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. All right. Well, thank you so much again for having me. Next up, they're using horses to help folks overcome trauma. Invites clients to have their own solutions. The unique form of psychotherapy that's changing lives. But first, traffic and weather in a minute. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one organization is using horses to help children, adults, and families overcome a multitude of challenges and reach all sorts of goals in their lives. Their most recent program involved... Chester County Prison. Now, here to tell us more about Gateway Horseworks is Executive Director Kristen DeMarco. Kristen, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me, Cherry. So, for people who've never heard of it, what exactly is equine-assisted psychotherapy? It's a big 
word. Word, it is. <laughs> like, what is that? So basically, we're incorporating horses for the mental health treatment of people. And a lot of different people struggle with different mental health issues like anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, and trauma. And sometimes we need more tools in the toolbox, not just traditional talk therapy. So being able to get out, get into your body, be in the present moment, and work with these large animals that give us feedback in the moment about how we're showing up in relationships and have that experience facilitated by a licensed mental health practitioner and an equine specialist can really help propel people into healing and growth in their lives. Okay, so let's slow this down. What exactly? So take us to one of the therapy sessions. I'm there. The horse is there. The therapist is there. How does a horse help you get over anxiety or depression? So we look work alongside our clients to mm-hmm. reach different treatment goals. And we help them map out what would success look like. And then we invite them to do different activities on the ground. So there's no riding. We don't teach people horsemanship. But they might say something like, you know, I'm really struggling with my anxiety. I feel overwhelmed. And really, I feel alone. And and what I'm looking to do is just feel more connected, be able to be more social and to be managing things better when I'm feeling overwhelmed. So we might invite them out um, into the pasture with a herd of horses and invite them to start building a relationship with one or more of the horses. But we're not teaching them how to do it because this model that we work in is called the EGALA model. And it really invites clients to have their own solutions to their challenges. So being able to build a relationship is going to look different to each person. And so we might see that client walk out and reach out toward the horse, and the horse walks away. Um, And they keep reaching out, and that horse keeps walking away. And so we'll invite them to kind of explore that experience with us and say, you know, what was happening then? And they'll say, well, every time I reach out, that person walks away. It's just like my mom. You know, every time I've reached out to her, she just moves away from me. So what would it take for you in this moment with them, meaning the horses, to keep them from walking away? And she might say it might take time and patience. And so we'll invite them back out to have that time and patience and work through different strategies because Horses are really unique animals. They're prey animals, so they don't offer trust and respect from go. You have to earn it and work for it. And it really mirrors a lot of what we deal with in our own personal relationships with ourselves, with our family, at work. So being able to step into this non-judgmental place where the horses haven't read our files and they don't know our backstory, they just meet us in the moment there's something really refreshing and non-judgmental about that and allows people to really, you know, let down some of that shame and guilt that they walk into the farm with and be able to see themselves through new eyes. That's fascinating. It really is because if you think about it, people get so, they take everything so personally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, their mother or their child or their, you know, the spouse that's estranged, you're trying to deal with that relationship and the person isn't reacting or responding the way you want them to, but slowing it down, removing the judgment and really just sort of opening yourself up to the being patient. This therapy gives people an opportunity to do that. Yes. It empowers people to really sit back and say, if something needs to change outside here, in the pasture, it has to start with me. And so they really start becoming empowered, working alongside these 1,200-pound animals and building these connections, building trust, setting boundaries, offering and receiving respect. You know, And then the treatment team, the licensed mental health practitioner and the equine specialist, really help kind of bridge that metaphorical experience to their lives outside of the arena. So that they can then, you know, translate the skills and coping mechanisms and insight that they're developing at the farm into their everyday lives. Wow. And quickly, what is special about a horse that specifically makes this animal unique 
and well-suited for this type of therapy. Yeah, horses are different than predator animals like dogs and cats. You know, they live in herds and they are behavior experts and they have to be in order to keep them in their herd safe. So they need to know that that mountain lion sitting up on a ridge is hunting or if it's sleeping. And they need to do that in order to survive. So with people, they're constantly reading our nonverbal communication, our intention, our energy, and reflecting that back to us in a really unique way. Um, And it helps us, you know, like I said before, gain those kind of insights into our lives. And yet they're these really large, powerful animals. And it can really be similar to a lot of things that we're struggling with in our own lives that feel bigger than us, that feel much more powerful and overwhelming. And when we can begin to start partnering alongside those things and working with them instead of just being motivated by our fear, it can really empower us. And that's really what we see a lot of in, you know, with our clients that come to the farm that have no horse experience or have even had a bad horse experience you know, being able to kind of reframe that and work through that fear. Very, very interesting. And so your most recent program was in Chester County Prison. Uh, Tell me how these horses work with people who are incarcerated. Sure. I mean, working with women experiencing incarceration was really the jumping off point of forming Gateway Horseworks a probation officer reached out to us who's involved with the RAP program, which stands for the Women's Reentry and Assessment Programming Initiative. And it's really this innovative program to help women whose trauma they believe has directly linked to their incarceration and offer additional case management and mental health services and support. And so they reached out to us and said, hey, we want to really develop a program with you, but we don't have any funding. And it really felt like a call to action to me because we had the specialty trained staff that was working in a gender responsive environment and we had the resources to do something about it. So we decided to form a nonprofit um, to really serve specifically these women to start and it's grown beyond that. But, um, you know, the program has grown over time. It started as a pilot program and now is growing in to include men as well. Um, but the women are, you know, come to the farm. Um, in, they're in pre-release from Chester County Prison. And we're offering them mental health services um, in, in an experiential way. Um, and so the women work on a multitude of different issues like communication and trust and boundaries you know, they have to use their creative thinking and problem solving. And, you know, what we know about trauma is that it's not just in our heads, that it lives in our bodies. And so just talking about it can fall short for a lot of people, especially those who've experienced significant trauma. So being able to have experiential therapy in our tools in our toolbox to be able to support them as they start to transition out of prison and back into their families is proving, you know, to have some pretty positive outcomes. Yeah. And so when you think about the women, so people who come in and they're distrustful, maybe impatient, they leave, for example, a little bit more what? We've seen them just have these subtle shifts that have Mm -hmm. a big ripple, you know, when they're leaving. So a story comes to mind of some women who were coming from the prison and, you know, they were talking about how much they were struggling with their relationships with their family and friends on the outside. They were also struggling at the farm with this one pony who every time they tried to go near her, she would run away. And they tried all different types of things like moving really slowly or just sending one person out. And as we were talking about this, one woman decided to take a step back and lean against the fence and get low to the ground. And as she did, this pony lifted her head and little by little took slower steps toward her. And she outreached her hand 
And that pony came right over to her hand. And that was the first time that any of the women had been able to touch this pony. And this conversation as a group really evolved of, you know, when we call home from prison, we are so anxious to tell them about what's happening for us and what's going on for us that we're not making space in the relationship with our family and friends on the outside to have us kind of reach out to them because, you know, they are holding down the home front and they are still continuing to care for our kids. And, you know, maybe there's a different way that we can show up in that relationship. And so they got to see that through the eyes of a horse um, first and has really kind of transformed how they show up in their family relationships home. And, and when you think about how they're going through reentry, you know, that can be a really powerful experience to kind of build upon that connection once they leave prison. That is so interesting. I mean, that is a very, very, very interesting. So can people just sign up for this or do you have to be in a specific program? Well, we have a lot of community programs and that's been a big initiative of ours. So we wanted to create accessibility to horses because, you know, historically and currently, horses are a really elite experience. And so, you know, we thought that the the more people that we could serve, the better. So we have partnered with places like Recovery Centers of America to work with people recovering from addiction, the Salvation Army's New Day to Stop Trafficking program for women who are transitioning out of human trafficking. And we're also partnering with the Veterans Multi-Service Center to serve women veterans who are experiencing homelessness. But yes, people can certainly reach out for individual or family sessions And based on available funding, we can work with people on a sliding payment scale so that everybody can access innovative mental health treatment with horses. Wonderful. And so where can people find more information about your organization? So they can reach us on our website at gatewayhorseworks.org. We're on Facebook at Gateway Horseworks, on Instagram at Gateway Horseworks, and also on Twitter And they can learn more about our organization, sign up for events. They can volunteer at our farm to help us with horse care from special events to grounds maintenance and really help us get involved because this organization belongs to the community. Absolutely beautiful. So I want to say thank you to you, Kristen DeMarco, uh, Executive Director of Gateway Horseworks, for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this wonderful, wonderful initiative. Thanks, Terry. I appreciate it. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Lebanese author Nassim Nicholas Tlaib once said, if you see fraud and do not say fraud, you are a fraud. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.